For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, exploring a new plan that may help to avoid a water crisis in just two years. Go backstage at an innovative new play called Oaf. Tucson readers share the names of their best-loved novels just in time for the Great American Read. And listen to the harmonious sounds created by Tibetan singing bowls. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Federal officials recently issued a grim forecast for the Colorado River. After a winter with very little snow in the Rockies, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation says there's more than a 50% chance that Lake Mead will fall into shortage in 2020. That's ramping up pressure on lower basin states to sign on to a plan to reduce their water usage. Vanessa Barchfield teamed up with the Arizona Daily Star's Tony Davis to explore what the plan is and why Arizonans in particular should care. Here's the first thing you need to know about the story. The Colorado River is governed by a bunch of different policies created over the past century. They divvy up who the water belongs to, how it's delivered, where it can be stored. Collectively, these policies are known as the Law of the River. And it's an alphabet soup of acronyms. B-O-R. M-W-D. R-O. DSAL, IID, CAP, CFS. This, what we call ICS. And those are just a few. The two policies of the law of the river that we'll explore here are the 2007 interim guidelines, which govern water use right now, and the drought contingency plan, which states hope to pass by the end of the year. That plan is more commonly known as the DCP. I asked Tom Bushatsky, who heads the Arizona Department of Water Resources, yeah, why Arizonans should care about, about DCP. DCP. Because by design, it lessens the likelihood that Lake Mead is going to fall into elevations and levels where very large draconian type shortages could hit the state of Arizona. Places like Tucson would really start to take it in the shorts. That's Tony Davis. I'm the environmental reporter for the Arizona Daily Star. He came into our studios this week to talk this all over with me. We interviewed everyone you'll hear in the story together. How long have you been covering water issues in Arizona? Off and on since 1981. In 1981, the situation on the Colorado River and Lake Mead was very different. No one was talking about shortage. But these days, we have to. And here's how things work under the 2007 guidelines. The first shortage will be declared when the lake reaches elevation 1075. Right now, it's about six feet above that mark. When we fall into shortage, farmers in central Arizona will lose half their central Arizona project, or CAP, water. As the lake goes down more, other users will start seeing cuts to their water as well. California, which has the biggest share of Colorado River water, doesn't lose any of its water during those shortages. In fact, CAP would run completely dry before California lost a single drop. Now, the 2007 guidelines are vague about what happens if the lake continues to fall. I suspect, but I can't prove it, that it's a future people don't really want to face. 
the DCP is meant to put off that future as much as possible. Arizona, and I should note, Nevada and Mexico, would agree to take deeper cuts in their water. And in exchange, California would cut back as well, says Tom Buschatsky. So we have to give up a little bit to achieve that protection that we're looking for further down the road. You may be asking, what's in this for California? There is a point at which California could lose water. That's if the lake falls to 895 feet in elevation, a point called Deadpool. That's when the lake is too low to be released from Hoover Dam, which would be catastrophic even for California. They recognize that. That's why they're participating in DCP. They know they're not risk-free. The head of Tucson Water, Tim Tomier, says under a drought contingency plan, Tucson would lose about 11 percent of its CAP water. But that's the, that's the whole point. If, if all parties are able to contribute, then we can extend the life of the Colorado River's ability to meet our needs. Sandy Barr of the Sierra Club's Grand Canyon chapter says DCP is a good start. Yes, we need to have an agreement on dealing with drought, which is quickly becoming our normal. But it's far from actually solving the problem. It shouldn't be just how can we keep a little more water in Lake Mead. She says leaders, and all of us really, need to come to terms with our current water reality. We're not going to get more water. What we have is what we have. So let's figure out a way to live a little bit more lightly on the land here in the Sonoran Desert. And, you know, I think it's doable, but it's going to take some a, a greater vision than what we've seen from our elected officials so far. DCP is seen as a Band-Aid. It's a short-term Band-Aid, but it's trying to stanch bleeding. And the, the, the sooner we get it, the, the more quickly we would be able to stanch the bleeding if Lake Mead keeps going down. If you look at it that way, a bleeding Lake Mead... DCP should be fairly easy to pass, right? Not so fast. What do you see as the main existing barriers between where we are right now and DCP? Here's Tom Buschatsky again. So the the main existing barriers are the fact that the additional reductions Arizona has to take fall disproportionately on different water user groups within Arizona. One of those user groups he's talking about is those farmers in central Arizona. Like you heard earlier, as things stand now, they'll lose half of their CAP water in a shortage. With the DCP, they lose all of their 300,000 acre feet of water. Paul Oram is a lawyer for about 200 farms in Pinal County. He says his clients could get behind DCP if the state made some concessions. We could support DCP if there were statewide efforts to mitigate that additional complete loss of water which is just unacceptable to my clients. This mitigation talk gets pretty wonky, but in a nutshell, the farmers want cities and tribes to store their water in Pinal County, where the farms are located, instead of in Tucson and Phoenix. That's kind of a hard sell because storing water there would make it less valuable. On the other hand, it is in the spirit of shared sacrifice for longer term gain. Agriculture shouldn't bear the burden of the pain of DCP when we're not the beneficiaries of the, of the major benefits. The next barrier to passing a plan has been a big rift between Tom Buschatsky's agency, the Arizona Department of Water Resources, or ADWR, and the Central Arizona Project, CAP. The ADWR-CAP thing has been a huge holdup, and it's been very glaring and very visible, you know, splattered across the front pages of the newspapers now. And as long as that is 
unsolved, there isn't going to be a DCP. So in just really simple terms, in just a few sentences, can you describe the crux of the rift between those two agencies? Well, it's partly over power and it's partly over policy. The power issue is about who has the authority to do certain things like, you know, leave Waterman Lake Mead. Should it be just the CAP has the authority to do that or, or should the state be able to step in? Over policy, it's over how much you want to conserve and when. CAP got into some hot water earlier this year when reports came out that it was trying to not over-conserve water. So every year, a certain amount of water is released from Lake Powell into Lake Mead. That release is based on how much water is in the two reservoirs. Over the past few years, CAP has reportedly been trying to keep Lake Mead at an elevation that would get the maximum release from Powell. In one PowerPoint presentation, CAP called that the sweet spot. The upper basin states said CAP was gaming the system. All this resulted in a big public fissure between Bushatsky and the head of CAP, Ted Cook. But over the last few weeks, they've been meeting again, and they say they're working together towards a drought contingency plan. We asked CAP's Ted Cook for an interview for the story. He declined, citing the sensitivity of the talks. But earlier this month, he gave a talk at the Arizona Water Association's annual conference. We have come perilously close to failing to meet the leadership challenges faced by Arizona. No guy said we, because I bear some responsibility for the situation that we're in as well. He was sounding very conciliatory and, and somewhat... I don't know about apologetic, but it, but again, seeming sort of chastened for some of the things that have been said about them. And and just the fact when we spoke to Tom Bushatsky, he was more conciliatory than he's been in the past. We are moving forward. It's not about reliving the past, recounting the past. So I think there's going to be a good faith forward. effort to try to resolve these issues, you know, but who knows, you know? I mean, who the heck knows how much compromise is possible? Up until now, CAP has stuck hard and fast to its positions on both power and policy. Who runs the system and how is it going to be run? You know, how much are they willing to, to concede? How much is the state willing to concede? I, I don't think there's any way of knowing that now. Talk to me in three months and I'll give you a better answer. And these next three, even six months, will be really important in this DCP process. The federal government is calling on states to get a plan in place by the end of the year. Of course, if only it was that easy. Arizona legislators need to sign on to DCP, and they don't convene until next year. And then the plan actually needs congressional approval as well. In the meantime, 2020 looms, the year that it's more likely than not that Lake Mead falls into shortage. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. That story was reported in partnership with the Arizona Daily Star. You can read Tony Davis's writing about the impacts of shortages on this state and on the issues surrounding the drought contingency plan in this Sunday's edition. Rarely do you find art that is described as not intended for mature audiences. But that description perfectly fits Oaf, a new play at the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater. It's an almost wordless comedy that demonstrates the kind of physical theater that co-creator and director Wolf Boart has been exploring for decades. Co-creator Matt Wally stars as the only character, a caveman-like circus performer 
who finds the challenges of life stacked against him. He needs some unconventional problem-solving and help from the audience to succeed. Next, Andrew Brown takes us backstage with Oaf at the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater. I would describe Oaf as a silly, good-natured, uh, well, he has a hard time, uh, he has a t- hard time articulating uh, what he's actually uh, trying to say. He's got a big beard. He's stuck in something, and he's trying to find his way out. It is a very sophisticated piece in that there is a burping contest in, in the production with the audience. That's probably the not intended for mature audiences piece. I'm Brian Falcone, uh, Artistic Director here at the Scoundrel and Scamp. So when we were first talking about launching the theater, we got asked the question, well, why would you want to introduce any more theater to Tucson? I talked to my wife and partner in this endeavor, Elizabeth, and felt that there was a real need in Tucson for theater that would attract the next generation of theater audience. And so we were intrigued by not looking to put on children's theater, but to put on theater for all ages. My name is Wolf Bowart, and I'm the writer, director, collaborator of OAF. We were commissioned to create a piece of theater. We had complete carte blanche to do whatever we wanted to, knowing that we were trusted to create a piece of visual, physical theater. Some of the fun and the challenge of creating a new theater company is to be able to choose what is the work that you want to present. We were very intrigued when we were first approached by Matt Wally. I was a fan of his work already, and he proposed putting together a work of physical theater. (laughs) And one of the wonderful aspects of physical theater is its accessibility, its ability to speak to young and old uh, in meaningful ways. It'll amuse you and amaze you, confound you and confuse you. Behold the beast! A commissioned piece of work is rare here. For uh, Brian and Elizabeth at the Scoundrel and Scamp to go, look, you guys, we trust you. We value your, you know, your skills and your art, and we're going to pay you as professional people to create something. It's a rare thing, especially in this day and age when the arts are being cut left and right, to have that freedom to say, yes, here's a room, here's lights, here's sound, here's a theater, go for it. I've always been a a big fan of like Buster Keaton, the Marx Brothers, Tati Chaplin, Lucille Ball, Carol Burnett. I loved watching Carol Burnett when I was a kid. What's great about this is that it plays for all ages. It plays for five, six, to 96, to 106. And it, it has to read for everyone. And there's things that kids will respond to more. There's things that adults will respond to more. There's A and B stories or levels of metaphor, what it means to you. We have a lot of fun, even though it's hard work. You, you get a lot of joy out of it. The fact that they renovated this theater, put a lot of heart and soul and money and time into it. You know, it's a, one of the jewels of Tucson that um, I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops over the years. I love it here, and I've been really trying to see how to be part of making theater in Tucson really, really good. 
The video version of that story by Andrew Brown will be featured Sunday at 6.30 on Arizona Illustrated on PBS6. Weekend performances of Oaf, starring Matt Wally and directed by Wolf Boart, are at the Scoundrel and Scamp Theater through June 3rd. Their stage is in the historic Y on North 5th Avenue in Tucson. Over the summer, PBS is inviting people of all ages to make time to read and to vote online for the book they feel deserves to be called America's Best Loved Novel. The Great American Read offers a list of 100 titles chosen through a process that involved a panel of literary experts and a poll of more than 7,000 readers' opinions. Last week, AZPM hosted events at two Tucson libraries to help get the Great American Read started, and I talked to some of the visitors at the Murphy Wilmot branch about the books they love, even those that are not included on the list of 100 books. My name is Tiki. I lived in Greece for 25 years, um, so I kind of look at a lot of things from a, an expat's point of view. So that said, um, I go to Murphy Wilmot Library, and their book club choice this month is The Marsh King's Daughter, which is absolutely one of the most phenomenal books I've ever read. I read it the first time a couple months ago, and I'm listening to it on audiobook. Again, it's so good that I have to absorb it again, this time um, in spoken form. Well, tell me, what is it about this book that connects with you? Um, it just touches on so many different themes. It's suspenseful, it's about um, death, it's about survival, it's about um, women's empowerment, um, and it's unlike anything I've ever read before, and, and very well written. Would you introduce yourself for us and tell us something that you'd like people to know about you? Well, S. Bunker de France, retired stuntman, uh, currently doing a podcast on the West. It's Emil Franzi's Voices of the West every Saturday, 4 p.m. If we were sitting down for a cup of coffee and you wanted to tell me buy? about a book, yeah, I'll buy. Okay. So in, in return, though, give me one minute about a book that you love. Well, that's hard because I love hundreds of books. Uh, but uh, the book is Tarzan because I read that when I was a kid. And it really generated my curiosity and interest because up until then I really didn't care who I read. But because it was, I was so grabbed by it, I had to read all of the Tarzans. I read all of Edgar Rice Burroughs, the science fiction, the westerns. He's one of my favorite writers, along with Hemingway and Winston Churchill, you know. It's a lofty company, yeah. Ups and Sinclair. Personally, I'm a big fan of the John Carter books, oh, are what great. I really got yeah. into. And, yeah. you know, they start out as a Western. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. My name's Carol, and I'm from London. And what is a book that you love? I love Wuthering Heights. Okay, famous title, but why did it connect with you, or why did you connect with it? For some reason, I guess without going into details, I really could um, understand Heathcliff and what he was going through and his anger and his actual hostility to everyone and why it was there. Okay, so I have a tough question for you. Heathcliff or Mr. Darcy? Oh, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) I said it was a tough question. Heathcliff. So what's something that you think that Heathcliff has over Darcy? His strength, 
he had a strength of character and a strength of mind, albeit he channeled it in the wrong way. And his undying love for Kathy, which is, you know, that would be lovely, wouldn't it be, to be loved like that? It's something not everyone gets, that's true. That's true. My name's Judy. I'm from New York originally, and I love Tucson. I am a big fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, that's a great choice, and that may be considered by some people to be an unusual choice for anyone who's not an adolescent male. Well, I'm a big fan of sci-fi fantasy. Um, that book, to me, was a treasure that I enjoyed, and I passed on to my two sons, and they loved. I can't tell you how many times, but at least with each child as they were growing up, when I deemed that they were ready for it, I had to read it while they were reading it, or actually after they went to sleep, because they wanted to discuss it. And they are both avid readers and lovers of books, so it all worked. My name is Michael. I live here in Tucson, and... I am a writer as well. And what is a book that you would honestly say you love? Shakespeare's Macbeth. Oh, bold choice. So why Macbeth over, say, Hamlet or another play? Why Macbeth? Read it in high school, then saw a PBS version of the play with the actor Eric Porter as Macbeth, and I just fell in love with it. What is the theme of Macbeth that resonates with you and that you think would resonate with a contemporary reader? Greed, avarice, becoming mad over wanting to achieve more and more and then getting crushed by it in the end. So you think it's a cautionary tale? Very much so. You can watch the debut episode of the eight-part Great American Read series online and get a copy of the 100-book list. How many have you read? There's a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The human brain loves sound. It can be instrumental in helping to awaken memories and to assist in relaxation. Next, Tony Paniagua and Galen McCaw introduce us to a Tucson resident who's enchanted with sound frequencies that he says can help people in many ways. I'm Paul Lee, and I use a lot of singing bowls. I actually use tuning forks. And um, I work with people, and I help them manage their stress. So that's one of the key things that I do. And sometimes work with people who have chronic pain, um, anything that's kind of an ailment, mental health issues, uh, things of that nature. It's interesting work. I'm originally from Boston. I grew up there. I went to American University in D.C., and I was a psychology major, so I've always had an interest in psychology. I had brief brushes with meditation, um, Buddhist meditation, and it uh, never really gelled for me until I moved to Tucson in 2001, and I bought my first singing bowl on, at the street fair, down the 4th Avenue street fair. And... It was just amazing. So that's how I got started with that. And then I ended up working in mental health. And I taught people. I was a peer mentor, which means that I have my own uh, diagnosis of bipolar. And I was one of my jobs was to work with groups. And I taught people how to do meditation. So 
I went from one ball to two balls to three balls, and I would work with um, patients who needed some help. Um, and they learned to meditate with the singing bowls and with soundscapes and things like that. So then it kind of took off from there, and I now am up to about 15 bowls, including uh, some crystal bowls, which um, I use less of. I use more of the, the, the metal bowls from uh, the Himalayas. So I still see a psychiatrist. I've been on meds for years, over 30 years. Um, but I feel like my mental health has gotten better by utilizing these tools. I'm also a musician, so I've played guitar for years. And that's another part of sort of my, my wellness plan. Um, but these bowls are just another addition to that. So it's really been a, a boon to my life to be able to do this for myself and for other people. Sometimes the best medicine is helping other people, which is a big, big thing for me. The research is coming out more and more, and they have found that in things like uh, pre-op uh, situations, uh, people, when they're treated with singing bowls or sound healing, they need less anesthesia. Um, they're finding out that people in, in uh, retirement homes respond well to them. It's also been used in, in pain management. The hard research is not there yet. It's It's beginning, and somebody said that Things like singing bowls and sound healing are what yoga was 20 years ago. So it's getting out. I don't usually like to use the term healer because I, I've used more of a healing facilitator. So these, again, these help me, they help my wife, they help the people that I work with in a group. And I almost can't imagine my life without them now. I would say that it's a very spiritual sound to me. Um, it's a sacred sound. And I listen to music all the time. I listen to sounds. Uh, but to me, it's a very simple, direct, sort of meditative, which is kind of obvious. But it's also just therapeutic. It, there's something about it that clears my mind, gives me a focus. If my mind starts to wander and go into a sort of anxiety thoughts, this brings me back down to earth. And, but in the same token, it also sort of transports me. As the Buddhists would say, it's the sound of Om, it's the, the sound of the universe. It's kind of become part of my DNA. That story was produced by Tony Paniagua with audio assistance from Galen McCaw. There are pictures of Lee creating sounds with his Tibetan bowls on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLevore. 
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.